want the Republicans to wake up. Is what the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Um, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. I am grateful to the listeners who subscribe to this program voluntarily. Subscriptions start as low as $5 a month. Dan Blick, David Paulson, James Swift, thank you for your support. And if you'd like to help and you're able, go to PeterBCollins.com. On the homepage on the right, there's a tab that says you can help. In the second portion of this podcast, we'll be joined by Ken Silverstein, the Washington editor of Harper's Magazine. His recent dispatch, A Letter from Maricopa County, describes the mess in Arizona that spawns all this nativist immigration legislation. But first, Ari Melber returns to our program. He is the Net Movement correspondent for The Nation magazine. He also publishes regularly at Politico and survives a lot of those point-counterpoint uh, debate-style presentations on MSNBC and other cable channels. Ari, welcome back to our program. Thanks, Peter. I wanted to uh, get you to expand a little bit on a recent Politico column that you wrote because it, it really captured my attention and it mirrors some of my feelings, which is that the White House, and you were particularly focused on the recent primary runoff in Arkansas, where Senator Blanche Lincoln narrowly uh, won renomination uh, to another term, faces uh, a Republican in the fall, but you uh, offer the point of view that the White House is misreading the Democratic base, and in particular in some of the sniping that occurred from unnamed White House sources, that union groups had flushed $10 million uh, down the toilet and into the Arkansas River in a pointless primary. Go ahead and tell us a little bit about what you wrote and what you think. The White House criticism got a lot of attention, but much of it, I think, in the wrong direction. Uh, the most interesting part about that pushback to me was that the White House official who was speaking conveyed his or her premise that labor only exists to advance the incumbent Democratic agenda. Now, that is something you hear from time to time from people off the record. Uh, it's obviously not true, uh, as evidenced by the way labor performed in trying to actually oust someone that they thought worked against their agenda on the public option and health care and other issues. Mm -hmm. But it's unusual for the White House, even, even in a background quote like that, which was given to Politico's Ben Smith, to be so transparent about their view. And obviously, if that's where they're coming from, we're going to see these tensions continue to play out. 
um, because there are a lot of progressive groups that have an agenda that's broader or divergent from uh, what the administration happens to be doing. So I thought that fight really showed that. Uh, and ultimately, as we know in politics, making noise and coming close to the finish line or or making people worry about their jobs is a way to influence power. Mm-hmm. So obviously, Blanche Lincoln coming up and barely getting past the primary with about 10,000 votes and still in trouble for the general uh, is, is a senator that is paying attention to labor. So in that respect, um, they have, you know, they've had some impact. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I've felt since the Obama team took control at the White House that they've paid far much too, uh, attention to the right and not enough attention to the Democratic left. And to me, this is just another episode in a litany uh, of examples. But staying with the situation in Arkansas, there are some people who would argue you've got to give Blanche Lincoln a pass. You know, if you want to keep that seat Democratic at all, you have to allow her the freedom from the the far left, the freedom uh, to basically agitate against the near left, because she's got to run center right in a state like Arkansas to hold on to her seat at all. And the other element from labor's point of view is that Arkansas is a right-to-work state. And uh, from my my somewhat limited knowledge, I believe it's really only state employees and a a scattering of uh, some manufacturing jobs that are covered by union contracts. So why make a stand in a state like Arkansas that trends red and that isn't that strong of a union uh, foothold to begin with? I mean, that's a good question. I think you state the arguments against that primary very well. And I think actually, from a pure political perspective, those arguments uh, hold a lot of water in in a typical year. But this is not a typical year. This is a year where the White House would have its political interests served by finding ways to show that it is not incumbent politics as usual. Uh, And I think they missed that opportunity in Pennsylvania, where ultimately... They bet on Arlen Specter and lost, and a, a primary challenger in, uh, in Joe Sestak won. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they misplayed it in Arkansas, where it was very close, and we'll see ultimately what happens. But Bill Halter presented, and there's state polling that, that bore this out, he presented a fresh face that was not tied to some of the Democratic incumbent sentiment in Washington and incumbent reputation. So the the argument against all of this is from, you know, from typical... Politicos would be, well, White Houses always support the incumbent fellow party travelers. That's what they have to do. That's how they you know, get things done in Congress. But the rejoinder to that is, yeah, there's a lot of things that are always done and that Barack Obama ran against. And, you know, you and I were talking before, before this interview a little bit about the dust-up over whether the administration was, was offering people jobs to get them not to run. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a very old tactic, and there are ways you can do that that are perfectly legal. That is to say they are allowed, even if it's a kind of quid pro quo that, that people don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, but legal or not, Barack Obama definitely ran on changing that kind of thing. And I think he also ran on changing the kind of incumbent protection racket that, that uh, basically says how long you've been holding this job is more important than how you do this job. Um, so I think they missed some opportunities for their own political benefit uh, to go that route. And in the, in the political column that you mentioned, I closed by noting that it was exactly one decade ago that Barack <laughs> Obama himself ran as yeah. a primary challenger against the incumbent machine, and he lost his first House race. So it's, it's rather telling that today's President Obama wouldn't endorse uh, a comparable 
candidate Obama. Well, I, I think that was a particularly uh, prescient choice on your part to take us back to Obama's early political career. Because one of the things that I find quite amusing, and you may not know this, Ari, but before mm. I moved to California, I learned about politics as a very young talk show host in Chicago. And the original Boss Daily was still in office. Mm. And the, uh, uh, the precinct captain system uh, that ran the political machine was, was tr very transparent. It was right out in the open. So I know about Chicago machine politics. And Barack Obama is not a product of that machine. And that's a favorite uh, uh, swipe that's taken at him by the right media in this country. It's, it's a, a taken as fact on Fox that, uh, you know, he's no different from a Daly or a Blagojevich. And while the Sestak deal, the uh, attempt in Colorado to uh, sweetheart talk a, a primary challenger out of the race... Uh, was unsuccessful and was also embarrassingly exposed. Uh, as you point out, I, I don't think they crossed the line into illegal behavior. I do think this is politics as usual. Um, but it's not Chicago machine politics, and it's not a blago deal uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's right, and I think a lot of this stuff is caught right between that air, that that space where you say something is how we've always done it, so it's inevitable, and it's how we've all it's how we've always done it, so it's a bad idea because people don't like a lot of the ways that government and politics have always worked, you know, and so so you can kind of push that argument up to the edge and come out with a, a reasonable result on either side. Uh, we of course have a political discourse. Uh, increasingly fueled by television that prizes sort of the savvy over all other values. And so the savvy thing may be, well, this is, as we said, how it's done. Um, but, but those things can change, especially when we're talking about how uh, an administration conducts itself. They can change rather quickly because, because we're talking about the choices of a few people on top. And I, I say that in contrast, for example, to, say, the Senate, which has all of these arcane rules that, whether you like them or not, are very hard to change. And... Um, Senator Claire McCaskill, for example, is trying to change holds. If you ask someone two years ago whether you could change secret holds, the idea that a senator can anonymously stop a bill um, with their own threat to filibuster, uh, the savvy game would have said, well, that's not going to change because senators like that power. And I think that's true. And I think both parties are guilty of that. Um, but I would point out that as an example where it's, where it's switching on a dime, again, because of this virulent, intense anger out there uh, that more and more senators are not willing to defend that kind of thing. McCaskill, uh, as you know, this week um, has talked about clearing the threshold of over 65 votes to, to get that changed. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we are in an interesting time where the, the things that were once thought to be just the way Washington works are, are at least up for grabs. Uh, and I do think it's disappointing that Obama's not seizing that more, although admittedly he has a lot on his plate. And Ari, it's interesting because uh, I acknowledge that there is some anger out there uh, in the electorate, and I also acknowledge that there is somewhat of an anti-incumbent mood. I don't think it's particularly stronger than any midterm uh, cycle uh, that we've seen in the past. Yet, uh, in its effort to uh, uh, jack up ratings, uh, particularly on the cable channels, television news loves a fight, uh, loves anger and vitriol, and so there is this projection that the Tea Party is a widespread mass movement and that the anger that they project is therefore uh, a phenomenon that can be evenly distributed across the population. And I'm, I'm citing badly poll, pollster language there. Mm. Uh, the other piece is that I find very amusing 
is this uh, throw the bums out rhetoric that is very prominent on the right, but it's not very effective. And last week, mid-June, it was amusing to me, Rachel Maddow and uh, uh, John Stewart uh, on the same night debunked the anti-incumbent uh, numbers by showing that a single member of Congress uh, has been denied a re- re-election or, or through caucuses reappointment uh, to run for their post this fall. A single U.S. Senator, Bob Bennett uh, of Utah, has been denied another term by a rabid caucus uh, in Utah. But to project these phenomena across the entire population is is misleading and it's it's also a, a great disservice to us because it does force our politicians to run for cover and to avoid making any hard decisions in this election year or taking any hard positions for their campaign. You know, I disagree with you partly. Uh, I think that we have to disaggregate the question of how these feelings play out in the political system versus whether they are there. And so the, the sort of Oberman Maddow data point you cite, to me, doesn't answer the question. It tells us more about how high the barriers are for some of these public sentiments to be translated into political and electoral change. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily state to me, for example, that, um, that it's not out there. The Senate is only up for a, a re-election for a third of its members. So for people who are mad at their senators or for people who follow politics and have noticed uh, that a lot of things are getting bottled up in the Senate, um, in two-thirds of the country there is no lever to affect that. Uh, and as you know, both parties have very high barriers to challenge incumbents at the primary level. So that's another barrier. I could go on, but I think that's a really separate question from whether or not this energy is out there. Now, having said that, uh, I do take your point and agree with part of the the first section of what you were saying, which is that the Tea Party, quote-unquote, movement um, has been excessively covered and inflated uh, within the media. Um, And and, and at the same time, uh, angry progressives and disgruntled liberals get no coverage whatsoever. Absolutely. And And, and and that's an important point where the media criticism actually really dovetails with our questions about what's actually happening. In other words, media bias conversations kind of go one way and really focus on the media itself. Mm-hmm. This question of, of coverage and accuracy in what's happening around the country uh, isn't just about media bias. It's also about, thankfully, what's happening around the country. So I think it's a, in many ways a more relevant criticism. Uh, and as you and I know, uh, there were huge rallies uh, in opposition to the Iraq war, huge rallies for gay rights and other progressive causes. Um, that are well-organized, that reflect mass, deep political participation, which are not covered like this on, the te- uh, on television. They're not given this kind of esteem or respect. Um, and and, and let me add that, that throughout 2009, there were activists trying to raise the flag for single-payer health care, mm-hmm. and they were not only snubbed by the Democratic leadership and the administration, but uh, even when they got arrested at uh, the Max Baucus caucus, <laughs> mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was not given the same play as a couple of people carrying empty weapons to an Obama town hall meeting. Yes. And so I, I'm totally with you there. I think it's a good point. And, and just one more data point I'll throw out there for the podcast audience, you know, is people forget that the mass protests that were organized before the run up to the Iraq war still hold the Guinness Book of World Records title mm-hmm. for the largest political gatherings. Now, that's, an, that's an extraordinary fact if you compare that to the complete shutdown of that movement and that perspective in the, in the 
media at the time and then compare that here to the way the Tea Party is covered. And that's because the Tea Party is covered the way shark attacks are covered. <laughs> it's, it's not proportional. It's not saying there's more of this or this means something. It's saying, oh, my God, look at that. Uh, and as you know, on cable news, shark attacks are covered completely disproportionately to their occurrence in reality. And I think the Tea Parties are like that, and especially with the larger events. Uh, I've, I've, seen, I've seen some really good reporting in print publications about how most of the Tea Party protests are very small. Mm-hmm. Um, but of, on TV, you'll only even forget Fox News, which is sort of adjoined to the Tea Party movement through Glenn Beck's advocacy. But even on other television channels, you'll see it covered um, as if the bigger, uh, the bigger rallies are the typical thing, and they're not. Mm-hmm. Well, and nobody offers, well, I, I don't want to say nobody. I think Rachel Maddow has attempted to show the corporate connections to this uh, so-called Tea Party uprising, and that it's really uh, an astroturf movement that's funded by Dick Armey and Nancy Fotenauer and these other uh, establishment figures in Washington who are really just throwing anything up there uh, to try to block Obama in every way they can. And Ari, I think it's fascinating to see that the forces that John McCain unleashed in his desperation to be elected president, and those forces include Sarah Palin, uh, the aforementioned Nancy Fotenauer, uh, who heads Americans for Prosperity, and the work that Dick Armey is doing has led to John McCain having to defend what's left of his conservative credibility against uh, J.D. Hayworth and this virulent uh, right-wing movement in Arizona that we're going to talk about with Ken Silverstein in the next segment. But I I do find it amusing, and I haven't really seen the media uh, reflect on this, that McCain is, uh, you know, dancing to bullets that have been fired by his friends. I think that's true, and I think people forget sort of the mechanics of this stuff. I mean, there was a very serious interest within the within the McCain camp at potentially making Joe Lieberman the running mate. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe Lieberman, as most people will know, is a very conservative, now independent senator. Um, but there was a there was an idea that taking someone who had ran for president previously as a Democrat in this wacky year of change. Um, and having him as some sort of independent conservative with McCain would would somehow revitalize the ticket and be a quote-unquote game-changer, as people who who believe in that kind of stuff like to say. It's one of the more more obnoxious terms from 08. Um, But I bring up this history because it's relevant. That effort, which, according to the Washington Post and other papers, was something that McCain himself was very sweet on doing, was thwarted because the conservatives in the Republican National Committee, the grassroots membership, said that they would launch a floor fight at the convention to oppose the nomination of Joe Lieberman. And that's very interesting because it really dovetails with the conversation we were having earlier about what are the mechanisms for grassroots power. And in the Republican Party, uh, the mechanisms they have obviously have at the grassroots level increasingly been taken over by a very hard evangelical right-wing group. If Joe Lieberman is too conservative for them, and that was specifically, excuse me, not conservative enough, and that was specifically for them on the issue of abortion, it gives you a feel for where they are. And those folks ultimately, I think, helped make sure that it was Palin and not Lieberman that was the so-called game-changer choice. Uh, And as you point out, those people are still out there organizing uh, now in a way that that may cost McCain his, his job. The only other point I would add, though, is I'm not convinced that the observation that the Tea Party movement has massive, top-down uh, corporate and political support 
undermines the number of people they turn out. I think their low turnout speaks for itself. We talked about that earlier. Um, but, you know, Martin Luther King had support from the unions and ultimately from the NAACP. Uh, other grassroots movements, say their Chavez, forged alliances, um, being counter-establishment. Uh, some of those alliances were of a different nature. But the idea that these groups are working with larger interests, I don't think makes it wholly different than any other progressive uh, advocacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I just think that that connection... We see here in California, for example, that whenever the unions uh, get engaged in elections, they're demonized, particularly by mm-hmm. the conservative newspapers, mm-hmm. as some sort of uh, you know foreign element <laughs> that is engaging in the political process. Yet when corporate interests uh, do it, even through surrogates, um, it's just you know taken as a, as a very casual kind of thing, mm-hmm. and that's playing out here in these big money races where Meg Whitman is now at $90 million uh, in her effort to uh, buy the governorship. And Carly Fiorina is a piker in comparison, but uh, Barbara Boxer doesn't spend any of her own personal money. She's not uh, a pauper, by the way. Uh, but Fiorina has put in 5 or $6 million of her own money, raised another uh, equivalent amount. And uh, we really do see this revolving around this axis of, uh, you know, too liberal versus uh, not conservative enough. And it's, it's sad because, like Arizona, uh, California is imploding, and yet the governor's race on the, in the Republican primary revolved entirely around the immigration issue, which the governor of California can't do a damn thing about. And it was a replay of Prop 187 in many respects from 1994, even with Whitman using a cameo appearance from Governor Pete Wilson, the guy who championed that ugly measure, um, uh, to just to win the primary. And now she's spending part of her fortune to court Latino voters and uh, try to get them to forget Pete Wilson and Prop 187. Uh, I don't think it's really going to work, but it's fascinating to me that the real issues are being obscured as these divisive, hot-button issues that really are federal matters end up playing in state races. Right, and we're, we're seeing that a lot, and I think it's very unfortunate, uh, because especially in states like California or New York, um, states with the, you know, the economies the size of, of comparable countries, um, we're, we're not getting any kind of debate that focuses on, on the real issues that are in play. And immigration has been interesting, because uh, obviously... There's been a, a lot of demagoguing going on, but um, there seems to be far too much on the on the congressional calendar for that to get much sustained debate, you know, before these midterms, which I think ultimately uh, works against the Republicans who'd hope to make it uh, more of a wedge issue against Obama. Mm-hmm. So, Ari, um, coming back to our original focus here about uh, the Obama Democratic leadership and progressives, uh, we have another war supplemental coming up. And progressive Democrats of America and others are trying to uh, rally people and hold uh, progressive votes in the House and Senate in line. But we really do have a case here of uh, what I call left lawn, where Obama has been able to uh, create a new form of Teflon, where nothing sticks when it comes from the left whether it's the expansion of the war in Afghanistan, uh, the illegal wars, uh, undeclared wars in Pakistan and Yemen, where we are launching these drone attacks, uh, Pakistan in particular, on a fairly regular basis. And so, uh, you know, what do you think progressives are going to do 
uh, over the course of the next six or seven months, uh, because most that, that I talk to are pretty dispirited. And yes, they'll support their local progressive member of Congress. They're going to fight for Barbara Boxer here in California. But they're not interested in supporting the Obama uh, version of change at this point because they really don't feel they've gotten uh, virtually anything that they had hoped for. I think when you look at sort of a a diagram or a landscape of the progressive players uh, here in this Obama era, the only group that really has found traction and and reaction, to my mind, uh, is in the civil liberties space, and that's the ACLU. It's partly because they have the mechanism of actually taking the administration to court on their issues, and mm-hmm. they've won some cases, famously forcing Obama to release uh, the torture memoranda that he might have otherwise not done. Um, and they have an executive director, Anthony Romero, who has really gone uh, very directly and personally towards uh, the president in a way that we don't see other groups willing to do. Uh, most recently, last week, he talked about being disgusted um, with the executive power and human rights record of this administration. Mm-hmm. And I think you'd be hard-pressed to find um, prominent leaders of other progressive groups taking that tack. Um, in, in the anti-war space, obviously, there is a very big hole uh, in Washington with Move On, uh, that is a powerful organization that does raise money for candidates and do other important things, not playing the kind of anti-war role now that it did during the Bush era. Um, and you have other groups, and you have Win Without War, and you have grassroots groups. Um, but if we're talking about affecting Obama, ultimately it comes back to a, a pretty narrow tool set of what you can do in Washington related to to money and media influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, I'm just not seeing that um, at all in the, you know, in the anti-war front. Now, challenges to, um, to members of Congress still have a role to play, but as you say, that doesn't necessarily get you right to Obama going into the to midterms. So well, it, and, and the, the only race that uh, had any chance of uh, uh, upending an incumbent here was the Jane Harmon challenge from Marcy Winograd near Los Angeles. And I believe Marcy got to 41 points this time from 37 last time, but uh, it's very hard to defeat an incumbent, and it was extremely wrenching for progressives to see uh, people like uh, Lynn Woolsey and Barbara Lee of the Progressive Caucus um, holding their noses, presumably, but supporting Jane Harmon because uh, they're members of the same club and uh, they, they fear that they might be challenged in a primary sometime down the road. Right, and that takes you back to you know some of the incumbency stuff we talked about. You know, the other piece is whether, whether any change in the Senate uh, ultimately sets a bit of a different tone. I mean, Nancy Pelosi um, you know, did vote against this war and has... In her view, she says she tries to work with the Progressive Caucus and anti-war efforts when she can. Um, but her ultimate, her ultimate, uh, you know, responsibility is to get majorities, and that's what she says she has to do. On the Senate side, you don't even have that lip service. I mean, you have nothing. Um, but if Harry Reid does lose in Nevada, um, you have a very interesting standoff there between Senator Durbin, who's much more, I think of a peace figure um, mm-hmm. and a potential partner uh, than Senator Schumer. Uh, their voting record at least would reflect that, how they manage the Senate. No one knows until they get in there. Um, but, uh, but that's another you know, small area of, of, of some, where some difference can be made up. Well, it's going to be very interesting. And Ari, uh, briefly, I know you cover the uh, net roots, the Internet, and uh, other technology developments. And I noticed that since we last talked, you are following me at Twitter, so I better I better tweet. It's been a while. <laughs> Come on in. You know, the water's warm. But tell me what's new on the web that you've been following. 
Well, the funniest thing is, uh, you know, a lot of times what you see as an idea will poke around the Internet or poke around, you know, whatever email list you're on, and then a couple months later become mainstream. And the big new idea that we're hearing so much about, I think, is how technology is really rewiring our brains and the way we think, uh, in part because Nick Carr, who's, a, I think, a wonderful thinker and journalist for The New York Times, uh, has a big book out on this, of course. People have been talking about this for a very long time. Um, but I think that the big new idea that's going around is how multitasking is really disrupting people's ability to do longer, deeper thinking, and a whole set of uh, neurological studies that suggest that so-called multitasking isn't even that. It's not even doing more than one thing at once like we think. It's actually jumping around in a way that can be efficient if you're doing something very simple, but more often than not involves um, lower performance in a range of activities. So that, that book by Nick Carr, which I actually personally have I've read his work, but I haven't read the whole book yet, makes that point, and people are talking about that a lot, and there's been a debate in the blogs and on Twitter on that. Uh, my view, of course, um, especially with Twitter, is it's like anything else. Uh, is email dumb or is email smart? Well, it kind of depends who you email with, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, is chit-chat in the hallway dumb? Well, sometimes it is, but it's a necessary social activity for a lot of us. Um, and so uh, Twitter can be very interesting as a way to share short uh, and quick items, um, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's a place you want to spend hours or, or spend your whole day, obviously. Well, I just need to carve out 15 minutes, and I don't do it often enough. So uh, I'll have to catch up with you on Twitter, and I'll, I'll tweet as soon as I can. Ari Melber is also, uh, his, his commentaries and articles are available at his website, ariarimelber.com. He writes for The Nation and Politico, and I thank you for joining us today, Ari. Thank you, Peter. Always good talking to you. Still to come on this edition of the Peter B. Collins Show, we'll go to the great Southwest, to Arizona. Talk about the weird distraction politics there. Ken Silverstein, Washington editor of Harper's Magazine, will join us in just a few. But first, we've got widespread voter fraud, and it's happening in the South. Well, the train, the grind, the switch is running right on time, and the Tucker boys are cooking down in Carolina. People down in Florida can't be still when the Leonard Skinner's picking down in Jacksonville. People down in Georgia come from near and far to hear Richard Best picking on that red guitar. So get around, get around, chillin' get down. As you will hear, my tongue was in cheek when I said voter fraud. What we're talking about looks more like a critter called election fraud. And the South keeps doing it again, and again, and again. Thank you, you redneck right-winger, Charlie Daniels. I knew he was good for something. Brad Friedman makes his third appearance on our program in as many weeks. He's very kind with his time and keeps us updated on uh, what I think are some very important stories. Hello again, Brad. Hello again, Peter. That wasn't the uh, Charlie Daniels, who is the Secretary of State of uh, Arkansas, was it? Uh, no, I think it's the redneck from Georgia. Oh, okay. Good. Yeah. Tough to keep all of these guys straight. Well, it certainly is. <laughs> well, Brad, I wanted to get the uh, very latest on the situation in South Carolina, because uh, we've had a couple of conversations about this. And uh, when we spoke last week, it was before the State Democratic Committee met to uh, consider, and then they ultimately rejected the claim of Vic Rawl that uh, there were shenanigans in that election that produced a a 59% return statewide for unknown Alvin Green 
The guy with no campaign, no website, no bumper stickers, no committee, no meetings, no no campaign appearances, no nothing. No computer, no cell phone. Uh-huh. And yet he uh, somehow uh, received more than 100,000 votes in South Carolina. Go figure. Beating out a, a four-term uh, former state legislator, le- legislator, a circuit court judge, who logged 17,000 miles campaigning across the state, appeared at more than uh, 70 campaign events. Uh, but other than that, this entire thing makes perfect sense, at least according to the uh, state Democratic Party executive uh, executive board as of last week. Now, last week, uh, they met for it appeared to be about five hours. I looked at your uh, compressed coverage. I mm-hmm. wasn't able to watch the uh, live blogging. But it was streamed live on the web, and you covered it uh, in your inimitable style. Um, were there any surprises, or was this just a kind of a deedle, tweedledee, tweedledum, uh, we don't really want to touch this thing with a 10-foot pole? Uh, it actually, uh, th- there were some surprises. It was a pretty extraordinary hearing, in truth. Uh, in fact, uh, the Rawl team put together a hell of a good presentation, a hell of a good case. They brought in uh, some terrific voting machine experts. I was, you know, quite concerned because there's some of them out there who are better than others and worse than others, we'll say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they brought in actually a terrific team who made a great present- presentation and, and, you know, and basically went through the case and uh, debunked all of the other possibilities for, you know, to explain the results other than the voting machines. Uh, a problem being either uh, malfunction or malfeasance, who knows, because uh, these experts that they had brought in to try to investigate these systems in the 10 days they had to do so here were, of course, met with resistance. They were not allowed to look at the, uh, at the voting machines, at the memory cards. This is a story, Peter, that you and I know too well, you know, as far as what happens when folks try to investigate these systems. They're shut down, told it's, you know, proprietary information, none of your business. You just have to trust us. And, you know, in the end, what they said was, you know, we've got 100% unverifiable voting machines here, just as I've been arguing for years. We can't investigate them, but we, uh, you know, have ruled out all of the other possibilities. And at the same time, We've got all kinds of reports of voters, and and a lot of these voters uh, testified at this hearing as well, voters who said that they were trying to vote for uh, Vic Rawl and their vote was flipping over to Alvin Green. That's a story we've certainly heard before. Yeah. You had, you know, voters in, in some cases, some of these uh, were, were rather extraordinary. You had one voter who testified that she went, she voted for governor at the top of the ticket, then the machine went gray. There were some strange-looking fonts, and when it restored itself, there was Alvin Green checked, and she hadn't even gotten to that race yet. Wow. Uh, another voter said that uh, she voted for governor without a problem. She voted for uh, the U.S. Senate, uh, chose Vic Rawl without a problem, chose one other race without a problem, went to the confirmation screen just before you, uh, you know, hit the, the, the final cast vote button, and there was Alvin Green checked instead of Vic Rawl. Uh, so, you know, we heard stories like this, uh, and, and I was quite impressed with their presentation, given that they had just 10 days to put this together, given how little that most folks, uh, certainly candidates, seem to understand about the dangers of these systems. So 
I thought it was a hell of a good presentation. Uh, and then something odd happened. They uh, called for, uh, they, they did a quick, uh, there was a motion to go into executive session mm-hmm. to meet with the attorneys to discuss the legal ramifications about all of this. Now, at that time that they went into this closed session, up until then, remember, the only information that was presented to the 92-member executive board, and only about half of them were there, was information uh, charging that the election results were not true and not accurate. And as Rawls' attorney had pointed out to the executive board, their uh, job was to determine whether the election results were true and accurate as based on the information that they were presented here today at this protest. Now, the fact that Alvin Green didn't even bother to show up to this protest hearing didn't have any representatives, no attorneys. Uh, the only case that these executive board members heard was that, in fact, the election was not true and accurate, and they were supposed to decide the matter on that evidence. Now, didn't well, they even try to appoint a public offender in his uh, <laughs> in his absence? No, nobody, nothing. Actually, they did. The executive board tried to offer him, I, I believe, an attorney. Uh, if you know to to show up and to represent his case and and normally in a case like this in a protest like this you would you would really you would hear from both candidates you would hear from both sides and you know the executive board would be able to listen and decide uh, you know who had the better evidence you know for this election being uh, true and accurate or not being true and accurate such as it was all they heard was that this election was not true and accurate and they were supposed to determine uh, you know, the, their their vote on this protest based on that information. But something happened. They went into uh, executive session to discuss uh, their with their attorneys the legal ramifications, and when they came out, uh, someone had made a motion to reject the protest, uh, and they had uh, a couple of folks spoke in favor of rejecting the protest. In other words, that would mean that the election was upheld, as is, with Alvin Green the winner, um, or, uh, or, or, you know, not rejecting the protest. Mm-hmm. Uh, people spoke on both sides. Everyone who spoke recognized that this was a highly flawed election. There was nobody arguing, frankly, that, oh, this is a crazy conspiracy uh, theory. Uh, I've read a lot of media coverage since the protest saying that, uh, uh, the, 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 the Democratic State Party uh, voted against the protest because they uh, you know, didn't receive any evidence that the election was flipped. That's not the case. They you know, stood up and said, yeah, we agree that this election, something went terribly wrong. There was a flaw here. And yet they went ahead and voted overwhelmingly to reject Vic Rawls' protest and allow Alvin Green's election to stand. The uh, results, I think, were 38 and a half to seven and a half. Don't, don't ask me about those half votes, if you don't I, mind. I promise. Uh, <laughs> now, the uh, f- husband and wife team of Don and Sue Fowler essentially run the Democratic Party in South Carolina, kind of like a 7-Eleven. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Don Fowler was a Clinton appointee, and his wife Sue is the state party chair. Uh, any indication that they did any conferencing with uh, Democratic leaders in Washington or at the White House? Do you have the impression that this was completely done at the local level in South Carolina? 
I have no information that there was anything, any discussion with the national party. Uh, that said, I have been able to to pick up a few uh, tidbits here and there from various sources. Uh, and, and, you know, when it comes to the followers, you're right on the money. And as a matter of fact, when Don Fowler was one of the folks to speak uh, in favor of the resolution to reject the protest, and I'm sorry, it's very confusing. They did it in this confusing way. As a matter of fact, as they were doing the vote, I wasn't even sure if the board members knew exactly what they were voting for because they were voting for rejecting the protest. It was Understood. confusing. And you, you just explained it very well, as you did in the blog. It was very clear. Oh, good, good. I'm glad it was clearer as I explained it than it was as it was going on because I had a, a tough time figuring it out. But, yeah, when uh, Don Fowler spoke up, and uh you know spoke essentially to reject that protest um, i knew that well the the jig is up and I, I it seemed pretty clear to me that the signal was being sent to everyone to all of the executives on that board uh how the machine should be voting here at this thing and indeed they did they overwhelmingly defeated it now i have no information about um uh, the National Party coming into play. What I have been able uh, to learn from uh, sources close to this thing is that there was a, a belief going into this meeting that, in fact, they were going to reject the election. Uh, however, during that executive session, my understanding is that the attorneys uh, told the executive board in no uncertain terms, look, if you reject this election, the State Board of Elections is out of money, and they are going to sue you. And this thing could get tied up in the courts. Now, that makes a lot of sense to me, because one of the folks who spoke um, in favor of rejecting the protest uh, was a woman, and, and, and pardon me, I, I'm forgetting her name, but she had talked about uh, you know, she was telling folks that look, we've got to move on. We've got an election in November. We we can't get hung up in the courts. You know, in a long legal battle, we have to you know deal with uh, what we have to deal with for the November elections. And that at the time made no sense to me because clearly, if they had voted to reject the election and uh, you know to uphold the uh, Rawls protest, Alvin Green was not going to be suing. Alvin Green, you know, didn't even show up to this protest hearing. So I wasn't sure what protracted legal battle she seemed to be referring to, and it was only afterwards, uh, in speaking to you know some of the insiders there, when it became clear that, uh, she, that she must have been told that hey, the board of elections is going to sue the Democratic Party and try to keep uh, a, a, a second election from being run here because basically they got no money, hmm. um, and perhaps for other reasons, but. That's some of the information I'm getting from the uh, from the inside there. I'd like to uh, get it confirmed up with a few other folks, but that's the general sense I'm getting. So I'm hearing more that that was the case, that it was a state party issue uh, and a state elections issue ra rather than any orders coming down from on high from, uh, from D.C. Well, it <clears throat> doesn't sit well with me that a political party would blink in the face of some sort of litigation from the state over what is clearly a, a, a hijacked election. Mm -hmm. And uh, certainly they may not think that Vic Rawl would have much of a better chance than Alvin Green 
of beating incumbent Republican Jim DeMint. Um, but that's not the issue. It's not a matter of trying to figure out whether it's practical or worthwhile. There's a very substantial principle here, and Judge Rawl articulated it, uh, as you pointed out in our previous conversation, Brad. He sized up the uh, voting machines and their vulnerabilities, the lack of credibility and transparency, and the fact that there's no way of uh, checking the vote once the tabulations are issued. You can recount the absentees, and we'll get that to, to that in a moment, but that's the only paper trail remaining. So what puzzles me is this combination of the state party ducking its responsibilities and then Judge Rawl channeling, take your pick, Al Gore or John Kerry in essentially accepting this and folding and just saying, well, we're going to roll up our campaign and boy, it was fun to tour South Carolina. Well, uh, I'll tell you a couple of thoughts on that. Uh, one is there was another uh, theory, actually, that I, I've just read this afternoon, Eliza Carney in the National Journal, uh, who uh, suggests that there may have been further uh, litigation, legal matters to deal with concerning the uh, uh, 1965 Voting Rights Act, that had they overturned this election, uh, since South Carolina is one of the jurisdictions that has to receive uh, preclearance from the Department of Justice, you know, when there's changes to uh, election law, that they also might run into uh, a lawsuit from the DOJ in that regard. Uh, so, you know, maybe those are the, the, the further orders from up high you, you allude to. But when it comes to Rawl, you know, I have a, uh, I, I have a difficult time, frankly, comparing him to a John Kerry, as, as you mentioned, uh, as far as turning over. Yes, he did say quite uh, immediately after the vote, uh, in a brief statement, that he was not going to be appealing this decision. But I don't see this, frankly, as uh, you know, uh, a 2004 presidential election with John Kerry. Uh, Vic Rawl really did step forward and uh, you know, minced no words in pointing directly to these voting machines. And mm -hmm. I, you know, perhaps my expectations are, are just so low these days for candidates. <laughs> but I find it. Uh, extraordinary, frankly, that he came out and did so quite directly, uh, you know, didn't walk around it, didn't uh, try to come up with other reasons, but pointed directly to these voting machines, as so few candidates are willing to do. Now, in the end, you know, he's a longtime uh, state Democrat, and uh, they did vote resoundingly against him, so I do understand where he might say, you know, okay, I made the case as best as I could. As a matter of fact, he did say that. You know, I, I think we have a serious problem with the voting machines. I hope the party will look at this. Uh, I'm going to continue to talk about it and to, uh, to talk about, you know, elect the need for election reform here. But no, we're not going to appeal this. We're going to move on as far as this particular election goes. So I, maybe I'm too forgiving. <laughs> but uh, I do appreciate what he did. And I do understand where he might be coming from, because, you know, there, there's also this murky uh, next step. If he did want to appeal, who would he appeal it to? Mm -hmm. uh, I was told by um, Walter Ludwig, his campaign manager, that it was somewhat unclear how this election law works. Had this been a general election, it would be, you know, contested. You, you would be able to take it to the uh, state Supreme Court. In the case of a primary election, which is, you know, somewhat a 
private affair, a of private the party. party affair, yeah. it's a little unclearer about who you even appeal to. He might have taken it to the state Supreme Court, and uh, they may well have said, we have no jurisdiction here. This is a, an inside party matter. This is up to you guys. Now, I do understand the distinction between a primary, and it is correct that the each party conducts its primary in certain ways under their own rules. But the election itself was conducted either by private corporations under contract to the state uh, or the state itself uh, subcontracting to ESNS. Right. Uh, so it seems to me that there is a clear responsible party there, and it is the state of South Carolina and it's uh, whatever its election board happens to be. Well, you have the, the, the party essentially contracting uh, contracting out to the state, and the state in turn then contracts out to ESNS, mm-hmm. as I understand it. So, you know, there's a lot of people counting on someone else to do this. In the meantime, as usual, it's the voters uh, who have no direct oversight and who, you know, basically have to uh, take the word of the uh, of the the state Democratic Party, of the state election commission, and ultimately of ESNS to decide who is going to be their nominee for the U.S. Senate. And this is the problem. This well, is or, the ordin- problem. Ordinarily, you would uh, sue the deepest pockets. But in this case, if it's the state of South Carolina, all you might find down there is an empty can of skull and a map of the Appalachian Trail. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. And, and, you know, in any case, they don't necessarily have the time to sue anyone because, in fact, they do have elections coming up. And, you know, as uh, Judge Rawl pointed out after the vote when he made his, his brief statement that, you know, we only had 10 days here, basically, those voting machines, their hard drive chips, their uh, cards, their uh, memory cards are being probably deleted as we speak right now because they've got a runoff election tomorrow in South Carolina. Again, had this been a general election, uh, had this been November, for example, they mm-hmm. might have been able to, you know, press on for a number of weeks, a number of months, as we saw in the Coleman-Franken race. But in a primary, it was a different matter, and, uh, you know, this is the way they chose to go about it. Ultimately, however, I, I must say I was rather just absolutely uh, gobsmacked by the vote. Uh, you know, after watching this for five hours, it was quite clear something went terribly wrong on those machines, either, uh, you know, maliciously or accidentally, but clearly something went wrong. There was no other, you know, case presented, and incredibly, the Democratic Party of South Carolina uh, overwhelmingly voted against doing a damn thing about it, and to me, the message that I took away was that you know, the Democratic Party is sending a very clear message to the world and to the Republicans. Do any damn thing you want with these voting machines, and we're not going to do a goddamn thing about it. Period. Now, Brad, the only piece of forensic uh, evidence that I alluded to that has any value are the absentee ballots. And I saw an analysis of this, and it's fascinating. Uh, first of all, uh, most of the uh, counties that counted absentee ballots had two stacks, ones that were received before Election Day and ones that were received on Election Day. And it showed pretty clearly that with a couple of exceptions, uh, Vic Rawls' vote totals 
were almost uh, mirrors, almost completely flipped backwards uh, in, in most counties when you compared the uh, results of the absentee tally to the results posted from the ESNS voting machines. Oh, yeah. He, he had overwhelmingly uh, won in almost every county when it came to the uh, absentee paper-based votes, the votes that you can actually, you know, verify and count and stuff. Uh, well, and look know. at after the computers have chewed on them. Well, but that's right. <laughs> And, you know, in many of those cases, it was, you know, not even close, 86% for Rawl, 14% for Green. And yet you had Green then showing up and somehow winning the majority of the Election Day votes on the 100% unverifiable voting machines. I don't think we have ever seen a, a clearer, more obvious case that something went horribly wrong. Uh, and I was I was somewhat hopeful in this atmosphere. You know, it was a little bit different from uh, 2006 when you had those uh, same ESNS Ivotronic machines lost 18,000 votes in a U.S. Uh, uh, House special election that was ultimately decided by 369 votes. It was a little different there because that was a, a special House election. It was Republican versus Democrat. It was, uh, you know, thought to be a bellwether for the uh, 2006 uh, November elections. And, you, you know, you had an overheated political partisan environment around it. Here, you had just, you know, Democrat on Democrat and uh even, you know, and there were no supporters of Alvin Green. Pretty much everybody looked at this and said, something's amiss. And I thought this might be an opportunity for people to finally do the right thing and say, yeah, something went wrong here. Because uh, you didn't have that overcharged atmosphere. You didn't have Fox News out there, you know, calling uh, Vic Rawl a sore loser. Pretty much everybody agreed something went wrong. And yet the Democrats still managed to do the wrong thing. Go figure. Mm -hmm. And Brad, finally, before we move on from South Carolina, yep. uh, in your view, did the corporate media improve its performance uh, in the wake of the state Democratic uh, uh, Party Committee's uh, decision? No. Uh, barely, if at all. And when I say barely, as far as corporate media goes, you know, they largely had to include at least a sentence uh, explaining why Rawl had uh, had protested the case, because his protest was in no uncertain terms about the voting machines, about the unverifiability, about the fallibility of these systems. You know, he didn't talk about anything else. So they had to at least mention that. Uh, and, you know, also a lot of the coverage, whether it was AP or anybody else, would allude at least to the fact that Rawl had claimed there was a problem with the electronic voting system. That's a step up, <laughs> at least. You know, they talked about it. Beyond that, no. Very few, if any, went into any kind of detail to explain exactly why these machines are unfair, unverifiable, you know, where they have failed before. Look, I, the day before the protest, last Wednesday, I uh, detailed a what I called a mercifully brief summary of ESNS e-voting disasters around the country, just the recent ones. And it was county after county, state after state, showing, you know, extraordinary uh, examples of ESNS elections just being bastardized 
by failure of these uh, of this voting system. And of course, no one in the media picked it up. Uh, so uh, no, the coverage was not much better, only marginally so, because frankly, if you're going to report on what happened last Thursday in that protest, you had to at least mention the word voting machines. So that's the only reason it was any better. All right. While we're in the Deep South, let's slide over to Alabama to Siegelman country, where the former Democratic governor is still fighting to uh, clear his name and avoid uh, return to federal prison. And I mentioned Don Siegelman because we believe that his reelection, I believe it was 2002, uh, was stolen. He went to bed the winner and woke up the next morning a loser. And uh, that was just the beginning of his problems. Uh, Carl Rove, who is going to come up in our conversation in a minute, uh, in our view was the uh, point man who uh, or- orchestrated the prosecution, not just once but twice, of Don Siegelman. And the uh, uh, legal issues and anomalies remain in that case. But uh, there is a report uh, in the recent election of some problems with an ESNS electronic voting system in Alabama. Tell us about it, Brad. Yeah, stunning that the ESNS voting system is failing again. What do you know? Um, this is uh, still an early report, but it certainly caught my eye. Uh, in a recent election out of Autauga County, Alabama, uh, you've got the district attorney out there investigating uh, what seems to be improper access to the ESNS voting system computer. The, uh, the, circuit, uh, the circuit clerk has said that uh, on election day recently, they had a list of all of the, uh, the names of all of the uh, folks who had voted absentee, that that list was closed as of election day. And then somehow, just an interesting point here, uh, a new name showed up that had not been on this list previously. It was, uh, again, by the ESNS uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, central computers, uh, had listed this extra voter. And at this point, nobody knows how it is that his name could have gotten in there. There was a very close, uh, I believe it was a, a, a primary... I want to say a gubernatorial primary, but now I'm, I'm forgetting what I, I think it, it was. I think that's what it was. It yeah. says here, GOP nomination for governor. Uh-huh. Right. And uh, this guy's name showed up, and the uh, circuit uh, clerk is saying he doesn't know how it showed up, that he has his, compa- his uh, computer is double passworded, and uh, somehow someone seems to have gotten into the system to add their names despite this double password. Now, by the way, the, the, the password and the problems with the passwords on the, ESN, on the uh, ESNS systems came up quite a bit, as one of the experts uh, spoke about that back in South Carolina last Thursday, and the fact that it has been found in study after study that these uh, ESNS system actually stores some of their passwords in the source code itself, in the firmware itself. Uh, and which were, they were just amazed by. Uh, he was actually a, uh, a computer science professor, said that if the source code as he has seen it for the ESNS systems was brought to him by a student, the student would receive a failing grade. So we don't yet know what happened in Autauga County, Alabama. I'm glad to see, however, that the uh, district attorney is investigating, that the circuit clerk is uh, appropriately concerned, 
and that may be a story to keep our eyes on in the weeks ahead. Isn't the ESNS policy that you should put the passwords on a sticky note and apply it to the bottom of the machine? <laughs> it, it might as well be, or put it on a sign on the polling place on the way in. I mean, it's just, you know, security on these machines is an absolute joke. And this is, you know, not me speaking. Yes, I was a computer programmer for 10 years. Uh, but, you know, these, this is worldwide, uh, world-class computer security uh, experts and, and computer scientists who have looked at these machines in studies, official academic studies, whether they be, you know, uh, commissioned by the state of Ohio, state of Colorado, state of Florida, state of California. They all find the same thing. These machines are not suitable uh, you know, to use on your uh, home office, much less to count the votes of an entire election. The warnings have gone out. Nobody seems to be listening to those warnings. It's, it's just incredible, and uh, it, it continues to be disturbing. But what can we do, Peter? And Brad, since you now can move on from the brush fires in South Carolina, yeah. uh, a week and a half ago when you joined us for a podcast, you had the exclusive story about Dominion Voting Systems of Canada, which has been buying up American uh, voting system companies. They got Diebold slash Premier. They've got ES&S. And uh, they recently made an announcement, and you can follow through now to uh, enhance the exclusive you gave us recently. Yes, indeed. And uh, I guess I somewhat scooped myself with you, but I'm happy uh, that you had that scoop uh, above and beyond everybody. I had to put the story on the back burner for the moment as South Carolina broke wide open. But uh, today, in fact, I have uh, finally posted this exclusive uh, Dominion, this Canadian firm that very few, if anybody, had ever heard of before. Uh, in May, did buy uh, Diebold voting systems, or at least the assets from ESNS, which had been the largest voting machine company in the world, uh, ESNS was ordered to uh, uh, divest of those assets uh, because uh, uh, under threat of an antitrust uh, lawsuit from the Department of Justice. So Dominion ended up buying them, came out and announced uh, how uh, they were so pleased to restore much-needed competition to the U.S. voting market. Uh, and then uh, not even three weeks later, they quietly, on a Friday, late Friday night, Friday afternoon, Friday evening, announced that Dominion had announced that they had also bought Sequoia Voting Systems, which had been the third largest voting machine company in the country. So now you've got Dominion owning both what was left of Diebold and Sequoia, giving them potentially a 55% share of the U.S. voting market. They may be the biggest voting machine company in this country. And very few, if anybody, if anybody have, have actually heard of this company. Furthermore, one of the things they did right out of the gate uh, when they uh, announced the, uh, the, the acquisition of Sequoia, well, not only did they not mention much about competition anymore, since they had pretty much bought up all of the competition with the exception of ESNS. Uh, but they also apparently lied about who actually owns the intellectual property that makes up the Sequoia voting systems. And in fact, uh, as the Brad blog had broken several years ago, 
the intellectual property for all of the Sequoia voting machines at the time had, in fact, still been owned by a Venezuelan firm named Smartmatic, who was directly tied to Hugo Chavez. And uh, when the information about uh, Smartmatic, uh, the parent company to uh, Sequoia at the time, had come out, Lou Dobbs was furious about it. Uh, even a Democrat, uh, Carolyn Maloney up in New York, was furious about it. This started a federal investigation. Smartmatic was forced to sell off Sequoia, uh, which they did, although it turned out that sale was a sham. Smartmatic still retained the intellectual property rights to all of those uh, voting systems, and they were used in about 20% of the con uh, country. Sequoia, the new uh, owners, went on to lie about it to the uh, city of Chicago and to all of these other jurisdictions. And now Dominion has con uh, continued the Sequoia tradition of lying. In their announcement of the purchase, they said that they had purchased all IP from Sequoia. And when I went to the uh, Dominion spokesperson and said, um, well, did you also purchase that intellectual property owned by Smartmatic, the Hugo Chavez-tied company. And they said, uh, well, yeah, no, we didn't buy that because Sequoia didn't own it. They didn't tell anybody about that, certainly not in the press release. And in that press release, which says this sale was reviewed by federal uh, authorities, by the DOJ, by nine state states attorney general, I asked the uh, spokesperson at D Dominion, you know, did were these bodies, these federal bodies, informed of the fact that Smartmatic, the Venezuelan company tied to Hugo Chavez, actually still owns that intellectual property? And it was at that moment that the Dominion spokesperson stopped answering my questions. <laughs> so that's where we sit now. Um, you can read all about that story, of course, at bradblog.com and... You um, tied into that whole story, frankly. Uh, that Dominion uh, spokesperson who I mentioned, his name is Chris Rigall. All right. <laughs> Ter terribly unfortunate name for a voting machine spokesperson. Uh, but prior to being the uh, spokesperson for Dominion, he was the spokesperson for Diebold. And prior to being the spokesperson for Diebold, he was the press secretary for the Georgia Secretary of State who had purchased Diebold for the entire state, and then she went on to uh, model as the cover girl Kathy Cox, as I like to call her, on the Diebold sales brochure. This, uh, there's more on that revolving door, and uh, one of the things I note, frankly, in the article is that if you think the compromise of federal oversight and uh, 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 regulation uh, was bad when it comes to you know this BP oil disaster and what we're seeing how the how big oil had corrupted the regulation the, the regulator process. Mm -hmm. uh, big election, big oil has nothing on big election. I mean, these guys are inside. These guys are making their own rules. They're making their own regulation. There is no federal oversight. Uh, so I would suggest the gusher of corruption in the U.S. election system frankly, uh, matches and perhaps exceeds the gusher of oil we're seeing right right now out there in the Gulf. Well, and as you were talking, I was thinking Rigall's probably being interviewed by uh, 
BP as their next crisis PR guy. <laughs> yeah, why not? Let's just stop answering questions. That'll fix it. Uh, yeah, that'll and, make everything go away. Now that you know, the question is going to be uh, who will pick up on my uh, exclusive here today, if anybody. Uh, paging Lou Dobbs, wherever he may be, he was outraged previously about uh, the, the uh, you know, control by Hugo Chavez of 20% of American elections. Well, now the company has 55%. Is he going to be angry now? Is anybody going to give a damn now? I Stay think tuned. Lou is busy planning Larry King's retirement party, but... Uh... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And he threatened to run for office, but we haven't heard a thing about that since he uh, himself was ousted from uh, CNN. Brad, uh, I just want to clarify, because as we uh, began talking about uh, Dominion voting, I did misstate that uh, they had purchased ES&S along with Diebold slash Premier. ES&S remains an, well, uh, a separate, I was going to say independent, (laughs) a separate company, and your humble host regrets the error. And finally, Brad, you have a new follower on Twitter. I do. Uh, just underscoring how popular I am on the Twitters. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, for folks who uh, are not currently following me there, I, I can be followed on the Twitters as the Brad blog. And you would hate to be left out and not follow me. Because I am followed as of Sunday by such luminaries and well-respected individuals as one Mr. Carl Rove. Whoa, you special someone! Yeah, indeed. He signed on as our uh, as our uh, newest follower at some point on Sunday. I was delighted that he uh, wanted to follow what was going on at the Brad blog. I can't imagine why he would care. I can't imagine, but. Uh, in any case, uh, to welcome him on board, uh, I did uh, think it was a, a good moment to have a retrospective uh, of a few of the uh, highlights of the moments throughout the years when we, the Brad blog, have been following Carl Rove exclusively. And uh, to that end, I've got some exclusive pictures of Carl Rove when I was down in uh, Crawford, and he was uh, glad-handing the anti-Cindy Sheehan protesters on the very same day that the uh, floodwaters were coming into New Orleans and thousands of uh, folks were dying, but that didn't keep him from having a good time down there in New or- uh, down in Crawford at the very same moment. We've also got a little bit of uh, exclusive video from uh, the day that uh, Brad Blog uh, blogger Alan Breslauer had some video of. Carl Rove unfurling a free Don Siegelman banner. You may recall <laughs> that moment, Peter. I sure do, yeah. And uh, and finally, uh, the third of our exclusive uh, Carl Rove uh, moments in pictures and video uh, would be some photographs we posted from Memorial Day 2007 when Carl Rove was uh, spotted by a friend of mine uh, inside a Safeway celebrating the solemn occasion of Memorial Day with the purchase of root beer, butter, and toilet paper. (laughs) Uh, That's too much information. (laughs) Fill in your own jokes there, but uh, 
that's what you have to look forward to if you want to stop up by Brad Blog, uh, as uh, our friend Carl Rove now does on a regular basis. And be sure to click on the rest of the story so you can see the colorful comments from Carl's pals who got really mean and nasty and called Brad a douchebag. And all I did was say, hey, nice to see you following me, Carl. (laughs) But, you know, these, these conservatives, boy... Maybe they have a different uh, different definition for the word conservative because their responses seem, to me seem to be anything but. but. Yeah. What do I know? Brad, keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, brother. Do I have a choice? Thanks for the update. All right. Brad Friedman, bradblog.com. And the Peter B. Collins Show continues. We're sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. And you're invited to check out and join the Peter B. Collins Organic Wine Club. Three selections a month delivered to your home for one low price. Click the link on my homepage at peterbcollins.com and start sampling these fine organic wines made all over the world. Ken Silverstein is the Washington editor of Harper's Magazine, and he's published a letter from Maricopa County. Arizona, why won't you go my way? Ken's letter from Maricopa County is titled Tea Party in the Sonora. For the future of GOP governance, look to Arizona. Ken, welcome back to the Peter B. Collins Show. Thank you. And your setup in the article, the scene setter, is priceless here. You describe the uh, uh, capital in in uh, Arizona, which looks kind of like a, a Soviet apartment block, you say. And then you go on to make the comment, the general unsightliness of the Capitol makes it a fitting home for today's Arizona legislature, which is composed almost entirely of dimwits, racists, and cranks. Collectively, they have bankrupted the state through a combination of ideological fanaticism on the Republican right and acquiescence and timidity on the part of GOP moderates and Democrats. Now, that's quite a statement, and unfortunately, it applies almost as well to California. Now, we've got a beautiful capital in Sacramento, but the inhabitants, while not entirely racist, um, we do have a bunch of dimwits, and we are busy squabbling over immigration and other issues while the economy of California and the state budget literally implode and what you describe in Arizona is on a smaller scale. For example, the state budget there is $9 billion a year compared to, well, we've paired it back to $84 billion a year in California. But many of these factors are stunningly similar, Ken. Oh, no, no doubt about it. I mean, there are numerous states, dozens of states that are facing huge budgetary issues and that are close to bankrupt. Uh, and California, of course, is... is, is in one of the worst situations, and politically as well, as you note, there are a lot of similarities with the situation in Arizona. But I cannot say for certain, since I, you know, I haven't reported from California, but having spent some time in Arizona and having studied the situation there, I really hope California isn't in as bad a hands as the state of Arizona is, because the state legislature there is just a catastrophe. I mean, 
you have the state that is going down the tubes economically, and meanwhile, because of the crazy ideological fervor, you know, you've got the legislature busy doing things like, oh, let's let's exempt Eagle Scouts from fishing license fees, and you know, let's uh, let's make oh, let's demand that Obama present his birth certificate if he runs for reelection, and let's let's declare a constitutional right to hunt. I mean, the the sort of craziness in Arizona, I guess. Nationally, it's gotten a lot of attention because of the immigration situation and this extreme bill that was passed by the legislature. But the dysfunction in Arizona is, is far, far bigger than, than immigration, and that's what I tried to get at in this piece. I mean, it's just it's, the whole state is, boy, I mean, you've got every assortment of kook running, running amok in Arizona at this point. Well, I, I, I understand that, and it, it, it does go beyond immigration, and you do a great job in the article of explaining that. But here in California, not to belabor the comparison, but we have Meg Whitman, who has already put $91 million of her own money into her campaign war chest, spent somewhere around 70 of it so far, and it's all been a distraction. She says she has a plan for fixing the California economy, it's an incoherent set of bullet points uh, that have been fleshed out into some sort of a glossy magazine that I haven't actually seen. Um, but here's a woman who's never negotiated a union contract and says she's going to reduce the state labor force by 40,000. And after she does, after she lays all those people off, um, she's going to balance the budget and fix education. And uh, no details are offered. And uh, as soon as this this issue was uh, the the show me your documents issue surfaced in Arizona, it was seized upon uh, as a huge distraction in the governor's race here in California. And even still, it's it's provided cover where Jerry Brown, the Democratic nominee, doesn't have to talk about the budget mess either because it's all dominated by the nonsense being uh, thrown out in paid media from the right. Right. Well, I will. I certainly won't argue with you. I'm not as familiar with the situation in California as, as I am in Arizona, but I do know that you know, in researching the piece, the two states that are generally deemed to be in the worst financial shape are California and Arizona. And politically, the situation you're describing sounds awfully familiar. So there, no doubt, are some overlaps there. Well, and here's one of the key points, Ken. And that is Governor Norquist. That's what I call him here in California. Because Grover Norquist of uh, Americans for Tax Reform has extracted pledges from virtually all of the Republican legislators here in California. And it's a two-pronged pledge. One is uh, they pledge not to raise taxes. And then he pledges to take them out at the next election, either via recall or in a primary challenge, um, if they violate that pledge. So here, once again, we have ideology uh, controlling our political process and limiting uh, practical people from making hard decisions at a difficult time. Talk a little bit, going back to when Janet Napolitano was the Democratic governor of Arizona just a couple of years ago, how she dealt with Grover Norquist and what 38 of the 90 lawmakers there in Arizona signed his pledge. Well, yeah, I mean, you again, the similarities are clearly there with California. You have uh, a large number of Republican lawmakers who signed the pledge, almost all of them, I think. And, you know, so they're in this bind where, and I shouldn't, it, 
to say it's a bind, it's a bind of their own making, so the yeah. word probably isn't quite the right one, but they've signed this pledge not to raise taxes, and yet the state is clearly, you know, people hate to ever say this, but Arizonans are undertaxed. I mean, they have cut taxes 15 of the last 17 years. It's just, you know, it's every politician in Arizona, including Napolitano, um, although not quite as extreme as, as some of the other governors they've had, but everybody talks about cutting taxes and that, you know, we've got to get the government off your backs. It's just this, re- you know, I mean, the state's back, of course, nationally to the Reagan years, but in Arizona it is just, you know, this extreme situation where it doesn't matter whether the state is doing well or whether it's doing badly. It, you know, always is one recipe, cut taxes. And so they've been doing this for the last several decades, and, you know, they don't, they can't pay the bill. And so the answer has been not, oh, gee, maybe we cut taxes too much, but, well, let's just cut social spending. We'll just slash everything. So that's the other thing they've been doing to try to account for this budgetary shortfall. They're just cutting away at social programs in a very, very dramatic way. I talked to a bunch of Republicans out there, and you will hear time and time again, oh, you know, we, we've got the same amount of money revenue-wise as we did in 2004. So let's just go back to 2004 spending levels. You know, it's all very simple in this world. But as a number of people pointed out to me, including some more moderate Republicans who have almost been eliminated in Arizona, but there's still a few left, they said, look, since 2004, count the number of new prisoners we've got. Count the, you know, the new population influx. Count the number of new kids in the schools. We can't go back to 2004. You know, we, that's great. I mean, we'll, we'll spend what we did in 2004. Well, you just can't do it when you've had these huge increases in the numbers. And as a, you know, one of the people I talked to out there said to me, you know, the job of politicians is not to lead us back. It's to lead us ahead. And, you know, if all they can do is say, well, fine, we, we've got the same amount of revenue in two, as we did in 2004, so it's simple. Just cut spending to 2004 levels. Well, you know, that's not the way the world works. It's not quite so easy. If you did that, you would, the state, I mean, the state would really be thrown back into the Stone Age. That's probably a bit of an overstatement, but you would have extreme impact if you just say, let's, cut, let's just cut a few billion dollars more out of spending, which is what some people will propose. And Ken, uh, are you able to parse just how far this uh, small government mania goes? Because, you know, I I can understand the appeal of it, and certainly you can cite numerous examples of uh, government waste and profligate spending. Uh, I I don't deny any of that. But at what point do people say, gosh, uh, you've cut my taxes so much that the schools are falling apart, uh, we've laid off police officers, and, uh, you know, the, the basic social contract with people and their government is frayed so badly that government, uh, you know, seems meaningless and people seem really, uh, you know, very much on their own, left to their own devices. Well, you know, and here we get back to Norquist, who famously said some years ago, you know, he wanted to strangle government in the bathtub. I believe it was, you know, cut spending so much that you'd strangle government in the bathtub or something along those lines. And that seems to be the goal in Arizona. You have just, you know, I mean, at a certain point, you, you imagine that the voters may get tired of having their kids' classrooms go from 24, 26 to 30 to 35 to 40 students. And, you know, they've had all these cutbacks at the Department of Motor Vehicles, so now you, you've got to stand in line all day to get your 
your your license renewed, and you know you've got cuts across the board. They closed rest stops. They threw God knows how many tens of thousands of of, of children off of health care insurance. I mean, at a certain point, you would think that the voters would say, "Hey, gee, maybe we we should stop electing these people." Um, but as someone who I interviewed out there pointed out to me, you know, when you've you've got a generally affluent state, and you've got people who. Uh, as this person said to me, you know, they go to borders to buy their books so they don't care about public libraries. You know, they, they, they have swimming pools in the backyard so they don't care about state parks. And, and so, you know, at some point there, there might be a backlash, um, but it hasn't happened yet. Now, the interesting thing, though, in, in Arizona, and this also is, is common, increasingly common in other states and at the national level, you've got a situation where most House seats, state House seats, are not competitive between the parties. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, the Republicans dominate. Most districts are, are safely Republican. And because there's no competition between the parties, it means if you win the primary, you're in. So that sort of plays to the extremes because, you know, you, you don't have to ever broaden to appeal to the middle. You just play to the base in the primary. And so this means that this is one of the reasons why the Republican moderates have been wiped out in, in Arizona, is that, you know, in a primary where you get maybe 20% turnout or 30% turnout for local races, you know, the most fanatical win. And, you know, if you can bring out your supporters and the most fervid, or, you know, the, the most ardent are the ones who, who come out, then you can win the primary, and then you don't have to worry about the general election. And this is a big part of the problem. So who knows? Maybe they will just keep electing more and more and more extreme people. I don't know Mm -hmm. at what point there might be a backlash, but it certainly hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Ken, let me quote from your article, because this is a fascinating scene you describe. You say, This confluence of nativism and anti-government sentiment makes Arizona fertile ground for an especially showy brand of symbolic politics. One day in February... I sat in the audience during a session in the Senate Appropriations Committee. And let me turn the page here. During the meeting, Committee Chairman Senator Russell Pierce, who has gained national prominence, he's sponsor of the anti-immigrant bill and has uh, most recently uh, introduced legislation that defies our Constitution, uh, trying to uh, ban uh, the issuance of birth certificates to non-citizens born in Arizona. So you, you describe Pierce, called on the federal government to put the National Guard on the border and have rifles with bullets in them. Apropos of nothing, the balding red-faced Senator Al Melvin brought up his pet topic of inmate labor, which he views as a solution to the state's budget crisis. Jailbirds, burbled Melvin, should fill potholes, keep golf courses open, and refurbish public buildings. Soon the committee began to debate whether to post the Ten Commandments at the entrance to the old state capitol. A six-foot granite version located a few hundred feet away did not, it seemed, sufficiently convey the state's piety. George Washington, our first recognized president of this republic, said you cannot properly govern without the Bible and God, and I couldn't agree more. And John Adams once made the statement that this republic is designed wholly for a moral and religious people and will survive under none other. Pierce, the measure's sponsor, told his colleagues. After a few minutes more debate, the measure passed, and the committee, having done the people's business, adjourned for the day. Now, this is simply, you know, one snapshot and there may have been days where they worked really hard on the critical issues facing the state of Arizona. But it really shows the um, a stream of consciousness, if, if that's the right term, um, of Bill Pierce and uh, his colleagues. 
Well, there are dealing with a lot of issues that would seem to be peripheral to <laughs> the economic crisis. I mean, it, it is not fair to say that they didn't deal with the economic crisis at all, although even there, they, you know, this sort of political cowardice of, uh, of some of these lawmakers was apparent. I mean, what happened was the governor, Jan Brewer, who replaced, replaced Napolitano, and who, oddly enough, is a very right-wing Republican, but sort of in the context of Arizona, looks like a moderate, mm-hmm said, you know, she comes into office as sort of a fire breather on the right, and she looks at the budget numbers and goes, uh, we got a problem here. So, you know, the ideology, there's got to be some sort of compromise. So she proposed a one-cent sales tax, a temporary one-cent sales tax for three years. She couldn't get the legislature to approve it because, you know, then they would be violating their pledge on taxes, even though the state is bankrupt otherwise. So they did finally agree to let the voters vote on the um, on the sales tax, which passed in May, which is going to bring in enough money to keep Arizona afloat a little bit longer anyway. But, you know, they, they spent a lot of time, they spend a lot of time on these ideological issues, like some of the ones I've mentioned before. You know, immigration takes up an enormous amount of their time. And, and they deal with a lot of this religious stuff. You know, the Ten Commandments is just, you, you, you've got to be kidding. The state is going down the tubes, and you really want to spend the day debating this issue? Um, so, you know, when I was out there, I didn't witness all of these things, but I'd read the paper every day. I, I, I was at the legislature a lot. And, you know, there's just a lot of sort of kooky things that were being debated just in the week that I was in Arizona. Um, you know, there was this bill to... Uh, forbid Arizona from entering into any agreement on climate change um, that was administered, that it was, it was like forbidding Arizona from agreeing to some sort of federal rules on climate change. Mm-hmm. And you had a state lawmaker who said, you know, you either have to oppose this bill or you may as well get down on your knees and, 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 and worship the EPA every day. I mean, you just hear things that, I don't know, I guess in my mind, Maybe because McCain is from Arizona and he's a moderate Republican. I hadn't. I, I I just wasn't prepared for sort of the kookiness of the state. And you really, you know, you spend a week there and you 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 watch the legislature debate and you just wonder what is going on in this place. Well, and Ken, it really seems that McCain is um, uh, an icon and uh, he expresses the symptoms of of what's going on there. Because as, as I was discussing in the previous segment with Ari Melber from The Nation and uh, Politico, it strikes me as a deep irony that the forces that Senator McCain unleashed in his desperate attempt to get elected president, including Sarah Palin, uh, Nancy Fotenauer and Americans for Prosperity, and essentially the, the lobbyists who populated his campaign, um, they have really turned into his enemies. And he has had to, once again, uh, try to prove his cred with the far right in his party. And, of course, his uh, work with Senator Kennedy on immigration reform during the Bush administration era uh, is coming back to haunt him. He's had to deny being a maverick. Um, I mean, he'd even deny his name as John McCain, it seems, if, if they challenged him on it. And so it's remarkable that he could not... Uh, see this coming, and he he couldn't see that uh, again. These forces he unleashed would 
uh, put him on the defensive where he may not hold on to his Senate seat? Well, I think he may have seen it coming, but, he, you know, like most of our political leaders, you know, he made a calculated choice to uh, take steps that he deemed necessary to guarantee or to, to you know, to help his, his election. It didn't work in the presidential campaign. I, I believe McCain will probably fend off his challenge from this far-right candidate in Arizona, J.D. Hayworth, who, talk about dimwits. I mean, this guy was a member of Congress. He was elected in 1994. He is a real, real I'm trying to think of a polite word here. Um, let's just say he is he is not the the, the brightest bulb out there. Um, well, he has to wear gloves because his knuckles drag so often. <laughs> thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, he is he's not real swift, and he you know be, because he is challenging McCain from the right. McCain has just pandered pathetically. I mean, if you, if you thought what he did during the presidential campaign was bad, you know, wait till you see him running for re-election in Arizona against a right-winger. It's really shameful. And so I'm not sure, so, so sure that we didn't foresee it as, you know, he, he made it a choice uh, and took decisions on thinking that it would impact his electability, and, and now he's just having to move further and further and further to the right. As you may recall, he actually, um, you know, I, I mean, Despite his yeah, all of this work on on comprehensive immigration reform, he's just completely backtracked on that. I mean, torture he backtracked on on the presidential campaign trail, but now he's just you know anything that he thinks will curry favor with the far right, um, he's willing to do. And of course, you know they're not buying it, and with good reason. I mean, if you have those beliefs, you know McCain's pretty easy to see, see through, um, but. He's been there a long time. He's a national brand, and I expect he'll probably win re-election. Um, that'll fend off his challenge in the primary, but we'll, we'll have to see. But but one of the things that that I'm seeing here is that the arguments are no longer tethered to reality, almost in in any fashion. And for example, I acknowledge that Arizona is a border state. That our efforts to build the wall across the uh, Southern California border with Mexico have driven more uh, immigrants into the gap there of, of Arizona. Yet uh, we know that the level of crime attributed to immigrants, or uh, let me separate those who are residents from those who are crossing the border, mm-hmm. um, but uh, they, they seize on one, one crime, one murder of a rancher, and make it seem like it is a rampage. And the studies have shown that violent crime is down in Arizona uh, to a greater extent than in other parts of the country, and that in particular the border area is is not showing an increase in crime, it's showing a decrease in crime over the last 10 years. Yet uh, one incident is seized upon and cable newsed into the, you know, the national media uh, as, as if this is a massive pattern and that they're under constant assault. No, I mean immigration is a real issue, and it's it's. I mean it's it's. I think it's manipulated. In fact, it's manipulated on both sides. I expect, um, but you know, I, I think it's a mistake to simply dismiss it as oh, this is just a creation of the right wing. I mean, if you're in Arizona, it is a real issue, and it, I think mm-hmm. it's you know it's to a certain extent it's complicated. It well, not to a certain extent, it is a complicated issue. Um, but yeah, I mean it gets you know it becomes a political issue, and then these ridiculous anecdotes are told that are supposed to be representative of broader trends when in fact they're just 
you know, they're, <laughs> it's an anecdote. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, everything is is turned into political football, and, and so you get these crazy solutions proposed. I mean, it's not to say it's not an issue. Everyone in Arizona recognizes it as an issue. It's just more complicated than the way it's generally presented. I talked to uh, an economist out there at the Goldwater Institute, which, as you can imagine, is a fairly conservative place, uh, uh, Byron Schlomach, and he said that, you know, and I think this is true. Nobody really knows. I mean, it's impossible to measure the, the, the economic impact on uh, of immigration, and that there are, you know, there are negative and positive impacts. And immigrants, legal and illegal, bring uh, positive things, and they bring negative things. I mm-hmm. mean, the state does pay out more money, and yet, of course, immigrants, most of them, work very hard and pay taxes. It's 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 very very hard to calculate. It's a complex issue. And in Arizona and in much of the country, it's just been reduced to a cartoon-like issue. Yeah. Well, and and I don't uh, minimize the set of issues, and nor do I believe that it's uh, inappropriate for states to pressure the federal government to take action. Where we cross a line into another world is these unconstitutional proposals and bits of legislation that uh, can only disappoint people. Because oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the legislation they passed in Arizona, in my view, is, is cuckoo. I mean, absolutely. Well, and it, it undermines the rule of law. It undermines people's confidence that there are legislative uh, solutions to these issues. Mm-hmm. Now, what is the latest uh, in Washington? Because over the weekend, I read uh-huh. that uh, Secretary of State Clinton, in some comments that were not initially noticed, uh, has uh, said that the administration will challenge the Arizona law on uh, requiring you to show your documents. Uh, has that moved forward? Has the uh, Justice Department announced uh, any any move on that so far? Peter, I'm going to have to plead ignorance here. I don't know what, what, what's happened okay. um, recently on that front, so I'm afraid I cannot answer that. Mm-hmm. Okay. I try to decline answering questions when I don't know what I'm talking about. I like to think that that's a good thing that probably doesn't help me get cable news bookings, but I actually don't know the answer, so I'd rather not venture one. It's kind of refreshing, Ken. <laughs> so uh, as we wrap up here, what else would you like to share from uh, your reporting trip to Arizona and the other research you've done for the piece in the Harper's July issue? Well, boy, I don't know. You know, I would uh, urge readers, or your, I'm sorry, I'd urge your listeners to go to our website, harpers.org. I've posted a few Interviews there, one with State Senator Rebecca Rios, who's on, on the liberal side, and another with uh, Senator Ron Gould, who's the most conservative lawmaker. That's the way he described himself in Arizona. Um, and I didn't find that I agreed with him on a lot of things, but he was sort of refreshingly candid. Um, and, you know, the piece is in the July issue. It's not quite out yet, but I think there's a lot of material in there that even though some of your listeners, um, being Californians and close to Arizona, um, you know, may be more familiar with the situation there than a lot of people on the East Coast. But I think there's a lot in there that's new. And the, the sort of level of dysfunction, I, I found it surprising, and I hope your, your listeners will, too. Well, Ken, as always, well-reported, well-written, and uh, I enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Peter. All right. And can I see your papers, please? <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. You can keep your stinking papers. Send me an email, peter at peterbcollins.com. Happy trails to you until we meet again.
again Happy trails to you Keep smiling